but it's not the way it's happened. And this is a major revolution in language teaching. And let me explain why. If this is true and the research supports it, why doesn't everybody believe it? Why haven't we changed language teaching throughout the world? And I think there have been pretty good reasons why. It hasn't gotten around as much as I'd like it to. People don't know about it. Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right in into the show. This is another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. My guest today is Stephen Kreshen. If you've ever tried or are learning a language and haven't heard of Professor Kreshen and his theory on second language acquisition, boy, then you're in for a real treat. And this episode will certainly blow your mind with things you probably haven't heard yet, and you'll likely get addicted to language learning. Stephen is a very prolific uh, professor emeritus at the University of Southern California. He's published over 500 articles, many of them peer-reviewed, and a dozen scholarly books in the fields of literacy, language acquisition, neurolinguistics, and bilingual education. Many of his publications are freely available for download on his website. Stephen has also received numerous awards, such as the Pimsleur Award, presented by the American Council of Foreign Language Teachers, the Mildenberger Award for his book Second Language Acquisition and Second Language Learning, and was also inducted into the International Reading Association's Reading Hall of Fame, as well as elected into the Executive Board by the National Association for Bilingual Education. And according to a recent study, he's also the most frequently cited scholar in the field of language education. He's especially well known for his hypothesis related to second language acquisition, which we talk about in this episode and go into detail. That's also how I got introduced and hooked on his fascinating and very intuitive hypothesis about language acquisition. And last but not least, and this one really surprised me, he was also the 1977 Incline Bench Press Champion of Venice Beach and currently still trains at Gold's Gym in California. So he's not only a very prolific and smart professor, he's also a ripped professor as well. So what are we going to cover in this episode? Well, we'll explore why language learning is still largely ineffective and hasn't fundamentally improved over the last decades, how Krashen's theory about language acquisition, despite being over 40 years old, remains groundbreaking, why you can't learn a language by simply speaking it, contrary to popular belief, how he can boldly claim that everyone acquired language in the same manner, why language learning is a subconscious process that can't be turned off, why there's a strict separation between language acquisition and language learning, and why consciously learned language can only be used to monitor language output but never be the source of spontaneous speech, and which particular order language is acquired and why that order does not change between learners and is also not affected by explicit instruction, why learning grammar does not improve language acquisition and should be restricted to an absolute minimum during the initial phases, why it's simply not true that children acquire languages more easily than adults, and he also provides overwhelming scientific evidence to back this up. How to apply his theory in practice. And finally, we discuss the most powerful tool we have in language education. And also stay tuned until the end where I, as always, try to reflect and summarize the interview and extract some of the key takeaways for you. That's enough. Let's go meet Stephen. 
Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. I've been looking forward to this particular episode for quite a few weeks now. I've personally been a big fan of your work. Do you want to introduce yourself briefly to the listeners who don't know who you are? Okay, my name is Steve Krashen. I'm a retired professor from the University of Southern California. I retired in 2006, and at the moment I'm under house arrest because the governor of California has has decided we should all stay at home. So I have lots of time for doing this, and this is wonderful. Happy to be on the podcast. Well, I guess Corona does have some advantages. <laughs> exactly. Before we start this interview, I've done some investigative journalism, as I do on every guest, and I found out that you've worked out with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Is that true? Sort of. At the time, 1971-72, I was working out on Venice Beach, California, which is the uh, descendant of Muscle Beach from the old days, and Arnold showed up. I was already, you know, mature guy in my 30s and all that, but Arnold was, I'd say, 21, 22 years old, Mr. Universe three times already, the most famous bodybuilder in the world. Now, I've written about Arnold. I've written a paper on his acquisition of English, um, etc., but I I do want to share the personal part. Arnold came by, and my goodness, he was so nice so friendly. You would be working out, doing your bench presses. Arnold would come over and say, can I spot you? Can I help you? Or you'd be doing your curls. I know everybody does their curls. And you say, try it this way. Put it like there. Everything he said was perfect. Everything he said was nice. He socialized with all of us. Arnold has a PhD in weightlifting. For a young man in his 20s, he understood everything and was one of the nicest people you would ever meet. So that's the inside gossip on Arnold. My article about him, though, which is on on my um, website, I'll be happy to share with anyone, has to do with his attitude about bilingualism. When he became governor of California, he said everybody should, people who come here from Mexico should do what I did. He said, I acquired English just by hanging out, listening to it, talking. And I stopped, he said, I stopped speaking German. And people, these people should stop speaking Spanish, etc. That's incorrect. The first language can help you quite a bit. So even though I've mildly and politely criticized him in the professional literature, extremely good person extremely helpful, a legend on the beach. So that's the inside stuff on Arnold. And you do competitive weightlifting, is that correct? My specialty, I used to enter contests on Venice Beach. They had what called odd lift contests, where you didn't have to do the standard stuff. And I did very well in those. I did the, my specialty was the incline bench press. I also competed on the curl and the deadlift and squat, all that stuff, and, and did fairly well. It was good. It was good, healthy competition. The good thing about it was that you competed mostly against people you knew, who trained with you, etc. And everybody encouraged everybody. If you broke your personal record, whether you beat the other guy or not, they all applauded, they all cheered for you. So it was a good, good exercise in the way competition should be. Good years. I'm still training. I'm now at Gold's Gym in Venice, still doing it and still addicted to it. It's a wonderful thing to do. The secret of my success is weightlifting and coffee. Well, you're shattering quite a few stereotypes about professors being nerds. You not only know your shit, but you're also a ripped professor. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Right now at home, we can't go to the gym. All the gyms are closed because of the uh, coronavirus. So we're all we're, we're all doing stuff at home. And I've looked at Arnold's advice on what kind of exercises to do at home. And it's been very, very helpful. So he's still, still a positive influence. 
The first time I came across you as a professor and your theory about comprehensible input in language acquisition was way back in 2010-ish, something like that, where I started learning Mandarin. And at that time, I went on a sabbatical for half a year. So I quit my job and went to China to learn Chinese. And this was also the time I came across your YouTube video. And you gave a talk there. I believe that dates back to the 80s. And you started this talk by making an outrageous statement. Those were your words. We acquire language in one way and one way only, essentially saying that everyone acquires language in the same way. Can you briefly summarize your theory and what made you make that outrageous statement? Right. Well, I really had no no um, alternative because the research pushed very hard in that direction. And I still think it's true. The language acquisition device works in only one way, just like the visual system works in only one way. The kidneys work in only one way. There's no important individual variation among people. In other words, people who know linguistics, um, I'm agreeing with Noam Chomsky, who says it is part of our nature to acquire language. It's what we're, it's what, there's only one way of doing it. And it's very, very simple. We acquire language when we understand it. If you have a conversation, let's say in Mandarin, and you understand what the person is saying, or you're reading a book, you are you may be acquiring the language if there's new stuff in the uh, input that you're getting. It's through input. That says we don't acquire language by producing it, by speaking or by writing. We don't acquire language by knowing about it, by studying grammar, by memorizing vocabulary. They have very, very little influence. It's fundamentally in one way when we understand it. So if you start talking to me in a language I don't know, and you make it comprehensible by giving me some background knowledge, occasional translation, drawing a picture, I will start acquiring the language, and you can't stop it. This is the best part. It's subconscious. While it's happening, you don't know it's happening. Once it's finished happening, you're not aware that you've acquired something, and it's inevitable. You can't stop doing it. Given comprehensible input, you must acquire. Now, a colleague of mine years ago, a guy named Leonard Newmark said that the important essential for language acquisition is that people pay attention to the input. They're actually listening. They're actually reading. And you have a much better chance of that happening when the input is interesting. It seems obvious now, but that is the key point. If it's interesting, in fact, even better, we call it compelling, extremely interesting, and you understand that language acquisition will happen. So that that's the fundamental idea. We're born to do it. It's not difficult. In fact, it's actually pleasant because the input has to be interesting. Okay, so I think we should take a small step back because there was a lot to unpack by you summarizing your theory. One of them being you can only learn or acquire language by comprehensible input. Now, some of the listeners might say, wait a minute, I disagree with that statement because in German, for instance, language means Sprache. And it's in the word, you have to speak a language in order to acquire it. So how is this general notion, you can only learn or acquire a language when you speak it, wrong, and your theory that you can only acquire language through comprehensible input, correct? Well, if you if anyone disagrees with me, they are in the majority, no question. Uh, when I first came across that discovery, it was uh, quite remarkable to me. Actually, it came from not just my research, other people's research. 
we think that the ability to produce language, to speak, is the result of language acquisition, not the cause. We think this is true, first of all, because we don't talk that much. We get much more input than we do producing. So it's pretty hard to let speaking explain this. In fact, we think speaking not only is not the cause, it doesn't even help unless it invites more input. If you talk to someone and they answer you, you can get input that way. But it's not the way it happens. Um, we have evidence uh, that shows this. If we take two groups and one group gets lots and lots of input and the other does output or gets both, the group with input alone does as well or better, usually better. Even more convincing than that are case histories of people who don't say anything and who can come out and speak and say things. A famous uh, researcher, Werner Leopold, who did bilingualism, had an experience which he relates, which so many of us have seen happen in our lives. He, um, he had two daughters. The first one, they grew up in Germany, and uh, he spoke German to them. They answered in German, but then they, they moved to California. And with one daughter, he always spoke German to her, and she answered in English since the time she started school, in fact, which is quite typical. From the time she was a little girl till she was in her late teens, he never heard her speak German, but they had a wonderful father-daughter relationship. He speaking German, she answering in English. He never heard her say a word in German until they went to Germany. The first week there on a family visit, she went to a party. She met a young man. He was amazed to hear this beautiful German coming from her. This has happened in so many cases. I've looked also at the research on anthropology, what happens in other cultures, and it gives the same answers. The, this um, hypothesis is supported in many different directions, not just in the cold, hard research, but also in case histories. One of my favorites is an anthropologist named uh, Sorensen, who years ago visited a group in the Amazon Valley. In this small group, 10,000 people, not very many, that's, that's not even a good audience for a football match. There were something like uh, 25 different languages spoken in this group, and they're not all related. The group had a rule. You cannot marry anyone who speaks your own language. They thought outsiders like us were incestuous. He interviewed them and found out how they did language acquisition. The children would grow up heavily multilingual. They learned their mom's language. They learned their dad's language. They learned the lingua franca, the common language of the small community. And their whole lives, they were engaged in language acquisition constantly until they became fluent in many, many of the, the 24 different languages. How did they do it? They interviewed them. They listened. They listened quietly. They didn't try to say anything until listening to the language for maybe a year or two. Then they'd start to talk. They wouldn't study. They wouldn't memorize. And they did extremely well. We don't have recordings. We don't have tests. But these kinds of stories are very frequent. We also have uh, case histories from other people who've done the same thing. Uh, African tribes, in the old days, uh, anthropologists looked at them. How did they get the language of the neighboring group? Uh, how did they pick it up? Where they would go work with another community. They would be quiet for a while. They would listen. And after a while, they'd start to speak. And it would take about a year or two till they felt ready. And then it would come out fluently. I've done case histories on this. We've seen this the whole, we've seen this again and again. It doesn't happen by forcing production. Not only that, forcing production is very painful for most people. Again, the case history rather than the research. This one is uh, 45 years old. My daughter, who's now a grown woman of 50, 
uh, was at a neighbor's house playing with a friend. And it was my task to go over, pick up both girls and bring them to my house so the mom could go off to Santa Monica Community College and go to her Spanish class. Fine. Came over, went to get the girls. The mom dashed into the kitchen, said, wait a minute, I've got to take my pill. She took the pill, says, now I'm ready to go to class. And we're good friends. I said, what was that about? Oh, that was Valium. Today would be Prozac. So why, why are you taking Valium? Spanish class. It freaks me out. It makes me so nervous. Ever the researcher, I said, what is it about Spanish class that has you so nervous? Having to talk, being called on in class, having to do an oral report. I then looked at all the research literature over and over again. The most anxiety-provoking thing in language classes is having to speak. Having to speak before you're ready. You may have consciously learned the rules. You may have consciously learned the vocabulary, but you haven't picked it up. You don't have a feel for it. It doesn't come naturally. This goes to another important part of the theory, probably the most important. There are different ways of getting better in language. What I've been talking about is acquiring a language. Eine Sprache zu erwerben, nicht lernen. And this means it happens subconsciously. You pick it up by listening, and it gradually comes. The other process is conscious learning. We call it Ansprache zu lernen, okay? Learning the rules, being able to talk about them, etc. The language acquisition is far more powerful, and it's the way things really happen. If you want to apply your learned rules, what you've consciously learned to your output, it's extremely difficult. It's very limited. We don't know all the rules to grammar. Teachers don't uh, teach all the rules. Teachers don't even know all the rules. Linguists are constantly coming up with new generalizations, new rules. Uh, most of us don't even understand them when they're in the journals because they can be that hard. If you want to apply rules also, you've got to be thinking about rules. You've got to be focused on form. And in real life, we don't do that that often. We're more interested in what other people are telling us and what we're telling them. Also, you have to have time. People who are involved in conversation generally don't have time to think about the rules. You're more interested in saying what you're going to say. So three conditions have to be met if you want to use your consciously learned grammar rules. You've got to have time. You've got to be thinking about the rules, and you've got to know the rules. And these conditions are rarely met in real life, in conversation, etc. The Even people who are very good at languages, the only rules you can apply are very simple rules. The complicated ones, you just can't do. The only time these three conditions are met is when we give people a grammar test. When we give people a grammar test, you have time, you're thinking about the rules, and you've studied them. In our studies back in the late 70s, early 80s, people use grammar only when, they're, when they take grammar tests. In real conversations, very little grammar use. So it's mostly acquisition, and that's mostly, that is acquired through, through comprehension. Uh, to summarize all that, people sometimes say, um, uh, Krashen is opposed to grammar teaching. Don't ever teach grammar. Teach grammar, go to jail. It's awful. It's evil. No, it's not. It's okay. It's very limited. That's the conclusion. It's hard to do, hard to apply, hard to remember. And we don't think about grammar all that much when we're involved in real uh, communication. Now, I have to bring up a big exception to all that. Even in our first language, we sometimes need a little bit of grammar. There are rules, for example, in my case, I'm, of course, highly literate in English. There are rules of English writing 
that I have not acquired because the language is changing. One of my favorite ones is the it's, it's distinction. It is versus it's, etc. Is it possessive or is it uh, abbreviation, etc. That rule for most people, about half the people I've interviewed, is not acquired. If I want to get it right, I have to think about the rule. And I regularly forget it. I have to look it up. Conscious grammar knowledge is a good idea for things like that. The who, whom distinction, the lie, lay distinction, etc. In French, making the pronoun agree with the past participle. You don't say, for example, la chose que j'ai pris, you say la chose que j'ai prise. And a lot of native speakers have not acquired this. It doesn't come naturally. Places where the language is changing. This is a very small part of language performance, but you got to get those things right. And that's a good place to think about grammar or recognize the rule when you look it up. For the most part, grammar is a very peripheral part of language education. It's mostly acquisition. Grammar is a very small, small part of it. This is very hard for people to accept. Some of us, and it's good that I came up with this because I'm a victim of this as well, some of us really like grammar. I hate it. I do. I love it. My graduate school, well, I have a PhD in linguistics. When I did linguistics and I discovered the work of Noam Chomsky, it was wonderful. The work is so beautiful. The descriptions of English grammar are fabulous. His claims about universal are absolutely universals are absolutely thrilling. So when I see a good tree diagram, it, it makes me happy. I am a member of a lunatic fringe. Most people are not like me. And in fact, when I can think about grammar and get something right, when I say, for example, you know, la chose que j'ai prise, and I add that that e at the end, I rekindle the victory of having consciously learned the rule. What people like me have to remember is that normal people get their pleasures elsewhere. This is a very small part of language performance, and it really is good for people who are sort of amateur linguists who enjoy knowing about language, a tiny percentage. Most people hate it. Uh, My estimate from looking at the research, if you ask students uh, how they like certain kinds of classes, I would say 95% hate formal instruction in language, hate grammar. 5% really like it. That's people like me. Yeah, you'd get along with my ex-girlfriend really well. She loves grammar. And I can also attest to your theory, and that's what got me so interested. Because your theory is so intuitive, it just clicked for me. And this also brings me to a point back when I was just about to head off to China to learn Mandarin. I attended a three-week boot camp at the Landessprachen-Institut in Bochum, which is considered one of the best language institutes we have in the German-speaking region, where they teach German diplomats the language their target country has, or the German astronauts that go into the International Space Station to learn, for instance, uh, Russian within three weeks. So they have a solid grasp of the language, where on average, you learn about 800 words in those three weeks, six days a week, seven hours per day. So they really cram it in. And I don't always agree with all their methods they have because they start with grammar early on. And I, as a bilingual German and English, I struggled a lot because I never had the formal grammar uh, education. I intuitively know how to use rules, how to use or conjugate verbs or things like that, but I cannot explain it most of the time. And if somebody tells me, for instance, use this tense in this form, I'll just look at that. I'm like, okay, what, what do you what do you want? When I attended German school, I could speak German and English perfectly at a native level, but I couldn't write anything in German. And you do have formal instructions in German school, 
but I, I always got an F because I, I didn't understand them. I could intuitively apply them. Now, this kind of brings me also to why I think your theory is absolutely spot on, is the reason why the English of Germans is fairly poor compared to the Dutch or the Scandinavians. Now, is the English of the Germans the worst in Europe? Absolutely not. But comparatively, it's fairly poor on the amount of years they have English in school. And this is because, and that's my, my, my hypothesis, is that the Scandinavians and Dutch people, they have much more comprehensible input. So if they watch movies, they only have the subtitles, but they have the original language. But in Germany, everything gets subbed. Essentially, the Germans, they can be really lazy because they rarely have to get out of their comfort zone because everything's subbed. And in Scandinavia, they have the original movie and they have the context to see what the actor is doing and can kind of, even if they don't fully understand what is being said, they at least get the, the gist of it. And it also reminds me of another example that I've seen on YouTube about at least 10 or 12 years ago where a girl was learning German and her pronunciation was absolutely flawless. I'd really had to struggle to see, is she native or not? And she was definitely not native and she was learning German and was complaining that her German's not perfect. I'm like, wow, I've never seen this before. And she explained how she was learning German and she explained that she was listening to a lot of Tokyo Hotel. So that was her favorite band or whatever. And she was listening and reading the lyrics to those songs and had a lot of comprehensible input. And she acquired an almost native level of pronunciation. And I'll, I'll try to find that video and post it into the show notes so the listeners can just themselves how good her German was by basically teaching herself German with her method of listening to songs uh, and, and such. So if I take the German education system, and in some cases the students learn English formally in school for eight or nine years, yet their English is relatively poor compared to the Scandinavian countries or the Netherlands, something doesn't seem to be working in how we're teaching languages in school these days. Exactly. So if your theory is correct and it's backed up by science and case study after case study, the question I would have is why the hell haven't language schools and schools in general moved on and, and applied your theory? Okay, I'll answer all those questions, of course, because that's my job. Number one, just to add something, the studies where uh, you see the 95% of the kids hate the grammar and only 5% like it, my suspicion is the 5% are the ones who become language teachers. And that's also my experience. I went into this field partly because of my love of grammar. So I'm guilty of this too. And it took me a long time to overcome this. Years of therapy and Prozac. No, actually, it's knowing the research which has helped and my own experience with languages. Also, it's, it's very tough to recover from this. I'm going to repeat that. Those of us who love grammar have a hard time giving it up. And they're the ones who control the profession. The languages I'm good at, I've had lots of comprehensible input. The languages I'm not good at, it's been very hard getting comprehensible input. Let's say, take Mandarin, for example. I had a few Mandarin classes, sort of demo classes from master teachers, made great progress, have a few books that are written in pinyin. I hope you don't get angry about that. Not written in Hanzi. 
Uh, I believe in Pinion. I think in the romanization, I think it's a great idea. And I can speak a little Mandarin, but I'm really terrible because I can't get comprehensible input anywhere. The only books I can find in Mandarin that are written in the romanization that are comprehensible and interesting, one was written by one of my Mandarin teachers, and I wrote the other, okay? <laughs> There's nothing out there. There are no recordings of easy Mandarin stories. Everything is hard. It's not because of the lack of cognates. That's part of it. But the real reason, there's no comprehensible input. I'm doing really well in Spanish because I live in Southern California. And there are all these highly friendly uh, locals who speak Spanish very well. And I have uh, very good relationships with them. Uh, the other languages like French, tons of things to read wonderful novels, um, etc. Uh, the ones where I don't have comprehensible input, I'm getting absolutely nowhere. Really, really hard to do. Hebrew, for example, uh, after six months in Israel, I was doing pretty well. But after I left, there's no one to talk to. I don't know Israelis. I don't hang out. My other language is Ethiopian. Go find people who are going to speak to you in Amharic. Uh, not really there. So it's hard to get comprehensible input. The breakthrough in pedagogy is going to happen when we have lots and lots of sources of comprehensible interest, interesting input. We're making some progress. The amount of uh, literature written in Spanish for beginners and intermediates is increasing all the time. And my colleagues in our website, storiesfirst.org, we're putting together stories that you can watch in other languages, in Spanish, in French, in German, etc. In a technique developed by my colleague, Benico Mason, called story listening, where she makes the story comprehensible, again, using occasional translation, not much, pictures, i sorry, drawings that she's done, clear explanations, um, etc. But this is slow. The breakthrough in pedagogy is going to happen when we have more comprehensible input. One more comment about Chinese. Uh, whenever I go to Taiwan or China, I try to get books for beginners in Mandarin. They're all very difficult from the very first. More easy input. What Benico Mason has done is given her students time. They hear stories. They hear hundreds of stories. And then easy reading, let's say in English as a foreign language in Japan, easy reading for one or two years, in fact, before you go to the hard stuff. When I took French in high school, by the way, I got a passing grade in high school French after two years under the condition that I never study French again because the teacher didn't want me to ruin his reputation. He's a very nice guy. Yeah, the class was all grammar. Now my French is pretty good. It's okay because I found comprehensible input. So this is the problem. We need tons and tons of interesting, comprehensible input. Not be in a hurry and it'll come a lot faster. Our guess, and this is my consultation with Benico Mason, if you want to move to the levels where you can understand native speakers, etc., for uh, most languages, you need to hear a hundred, several hundred comprehensible stories. You need to read about a hundred easy books, and then you can make progress. Then you can understand authentic input. So instead, we rush into the hard stuff. When I did French in high school, the first reading assignment was filled with all the grammar that was the target grammar for that lesson and the target vocabulary. So by the time you got to chapter two or three, it was nearly incomprehensible. The reading passages were like that, and then you immediately went to authentic 
Spanish classics, nonfiction, etc., prove very difficult, which you can only do by cryptoanalytic decoding word by word. The answer, lots and lots of easy input. Let me repeat that. Lots and lots of input that is so interesting that you forget that it's in another language. The word we're looking at now is compelling, truly interesting stories. And I have found books like this. I have found stories like this. I have found good authors who write like this in Spanish. Ariana Ramirez, I found her books. One is about coffee, which is great. Uh, Bill Van Patten, who's one of my fellow researchers, has written terrific novels for low intermediates in Spanish, where the stories are absolutely captivating. You forget that they're in the language. That's the breakthrough. Truly compelling input that's so interesting, you want to know what's going to happen next. Now, my confession in German is that I got really good at it by reading Karl May, Winnie Two. You know who that is. This is German. There was a, uh, an author in German who talked about a mythical North America. The hero was a German who went and made friends with the Native Americans, and his best friend was a guy named Winnie Two. And my landlady, my housefrau, when I was in Austria, uh, got me involved in these books. And they were really more than good enough. I must have read 30, 40. I read every single one I could find. And my German improved enormously. And it was relaxing. And I had a good time. So I'm very much in favor of light literature, easy literature, which can sometimes surprise you and have very profound messages. So this is the breakthrough. Easy stuff. Lots of it. Very interesting. So that's actually very encouraging to say we acquire language uh, subconsciously, which would also mean, and I think this is personally a myth, maybe you can comment on that, is people always say, well, children below the age of whatever, say five, or they learn languages more easily. And after that, it gets more difficult. I personally believe just from experience that that's a bunch of hogwash. Children per se don't learn languages easier than adults. I just think that's a cop-out. What's your view on that? Oh boy, am I glad you asked me that because I can show off and brag about my research in this area. This was the topic of my doctoral dissertation back in the early 70s. We thought then, and I believe this, that there was a neurological barrier to adult language acquisition, that when you reach about the age of puberty, the brain changes. The left, the stuff that's on the left goes all to the left. The stuff that's on the right goes all to the right. They don't mix. And for some reason, that made language acquisition impossible and had to be done consciously with pain and suffering. The guy who invented, who came up with this was Eric Lindeberg, uh, a scientist who I greatly admire. I think the hypothesis was wrong, but I think it was a brilliant hypothesis because it gave us something to study. Chomsky says, there's nothing wrong with being wrong. This is a good case of it. And I started looking at the neurological cases as part of my dissertation that Lindeberg did. And I found that the separation of the two functions, we call it lateralization, was actually done much earlier. It was done at age five or earlier. And there are signs that the left and the right were different even at birth. So I published that. And Lindeberg actually congratulated me on that. It was a very good example of scientific cooperation. Since then, we have overwhelming evidence that adults can do it and they can do it very well. The most impressive case history, I'll tell you about a guy named Steve Kaufman. Steve Kaufman speaks something like 17 languages. He's a famous polyglot. He's, he's now in his early 70s, and he's good. I've been with him. We went out to lunch with my Chinese teacher and her friends. His Chinese was really something. His French is excellent. His Spanish with dinner at a Spanish restaurant in Southern California, and he was really good. I think he's the real thing. So I've heard him do this. He says he's done eight of his languages since age 
62. Isn't that wonderful? What a great example. Some might say now, well, okay, that's an exception. He's a genius. He's a, he has an IQ of 200. Okay, let me get to that. Right. Let me exactly the right question. Thank you. Ah, I like you, David. This is good. Is there a gift for languages? When I was in um, when I was in Budapest, I met a woman named Lom Kato, who was very famous there. She was the local hero. She also had acquired 15, 16 languages, wrote books about it, uh, etc. And I, I made it a point to go visit her over and over again. And she's been doing it her whole life. When I was there, she was working on Hebrew and she was 86 years old and reading texts that I thought were quite demanding. And while I was there, I met a lot of the local famous people in linguistics and pedagogy. And I kind of milked my relationship with Lomkato. I took advantage. And I said, I've been hanging out with Lomkato. What do you think? And their universal reaction was, she's different. She has a different brain. Now, they couldn't tell me what was different about her brain. Does she have two left hemispheres or whatever? But they never studied her work, never met her, never read her books, etc. We did a study recently, which I think came up to, with, to a remarkable hypothesis. I'll give you the hypothesis. Then I'll tell you what our data was. If you have the right input, my colleague Benico Mason calls it optimal input, comprehensible, compelling, rich, interesting, all that stuff. Everybody's gifted. Everybody acquires at just about the same rate and they acquire quickly. My data comes from a study from Benico Mason, who just retired from the university uh, that she was teaching in in Japan. And part of her uh, responsibility was to teach a class that anyone could come to, people who wanted to improve their English. The class was stories, which she told in a comprehensible, engaging way. And the homework was reading what we call graded readers in English, lots and lots of easy reading. When she finished the course, each time a few students said, you know, uh, could you hang with me after this and, and kind of check on what I'm doing, help me find books, give me advice. She had about a dozen students who did this. And she said, fine, I'll do it. If you take uh, versions of what's called the TOEIC exam, which is a very popular exam throughout the world. It's not a bad test. It's the listening, comprehension, and reading parts. And we, I'd like you to take alternate forms every so often. And they did it. She also had records of what they read because she asked them to fill out something when they read some. And these are people ages 25 to one guy in his 70s. They all read different things. Some of them read graded readers. One guy read Harlequin romances. I want to I wanna meet him. He sounds pretty interesting to me. They all read different things. They all, some of them read Harry Potter, some of them didn't, um, etc. They had alternate forms, the test. Here's my conclusion. The average person, for every hour they read, they gained a little more than a half a point on the TOEIC. This means if you read an hour a day for a couple of years, two, three years, you're going to go from beginning low levels, barely competent, all the way to the highest levels on the TOEIC. They didn't study. They didn't do comprehension questions. They selected what they wanted to read themselves. The major point, though, there was not that much individual variation. I did a statistical analysis, and the papers on my on my website did what's called a confidence interval. The difference between the fastest gainer and the lowest gainer was there, but it wasn't that much. It would be very easy for the lower gainer to catch up to the faster one by just, you know, reading a hundred hours or so, you make really good progress. My conclusion, if the input is right, everybody's gifted. If you get comprehensible input, everybody's gifted. If 
the Dutch and the Swedes are better than the Germans. There's nothing in their brains that explains this. There's nothing in their diet that explains this. What you said was correct. They're getting more comprehensible input, comprehensible input that's close to optimal, that's interesting, that's compelling, that's rich. There's a lot of it. So my conclusion, anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. All it takes is interesting input and time. And the hardest thing to find is the interesting input. So I'm so glad you asked that question. There's hope for all of us. And I'm doing it. I'm still working on language acquisition every day. It's wonderful. Yeah. And the funny thing is every time I tell people that children actually have it much more difficult in acquiring a language than adults, or that adults can learn languages much, much faster than children, almost everyone disagrees. And I'm like, look, if children learn languages much more easily, and I, and I'm certainly not Einstein, can learn basic Chinese, rudimentary Chinese. I'm definitely not the best one at language learning. And I can learn 800 words and can get around in China within three weeks, as everyone else in the Landessprachen Institute was able to do as well. Remarkable. Yes. Then the child must be dumb. That's the only logical conclusion someone could come to if both are possible. But that's just not the case. What people tend to forget is it just looks effortlessly when, when children are learning a language. But language acquisition for adults looks much different from that of children. Yes. We adults, we almost always start with some basic words, some phrases, and then we have to learn the grammar, etc. Uh, essentially learning the language for multiple years and still not very good compared to children. So the system of acquiring languages or teaching languages for adults seems to be flawed. Or am I completely off on that? You're completely right. Uh, a more a few comments. Adults actually, when you look at the studies, are faster than children. Older uh, children are faster than younger children, and adults are faster than all children because the input is more comprehensible to them because they have more background knowledge. That's a good explanation, I think. And the one place where children appear to be better, of course, is accent. The other the thing, though, is that the kids apparently have better accents. And here is my conjecture on accent. The word conjecture is fantastic for scientists. I got it from my son who's a mathematician. And he advised me, when you're not really sure that your hypothesis is right, when it really seems crazy, call it a conjecture. It's really a hypothesis. So I wrote a paper called The Conjecture on Accent a few years ago. And here's my hypothesis. The perfect accent is there. It's inside you. I have a perfect Austrian-German accent. It's somewhere there. I don't use it when I speak because it's not me. I feel silly. There is a powerful barrier, an, a filter that keeps us from doing our best in accent. Uh, my analogy is clothing. Clothing protects you from the weather, but it also marks you as a member of a social group. And that's what accent does. Accent tells people who you are, what group you are, what you belong to. So uh, I'll give you an example that I think you can resonate with, or at least people who've struggled with languages. My accent in French is variable. That's interesting. Depends on how I feel. When I was in Paris one time with my daughter, my daughter's French is pretty good. She went to a French school, all that. So actually better than mine, I think. And uh, I made an appointment to meet a local scholar, a sociolinguist, 
And of course, we met in a coffee shop, which is what you do in Paris. And my daughter was like 11 at the time. She went off to play video games and she would occasionally come back to see how we're doing. Now, uh, we had our conversation in French. And of course, it was fascinating because it was all about my work. And uh, Debbie would come over and listen and listen and go away. She said, Dad, you were really good. I have never heard you speak French that well. It was excellent. Of course it was. Nobody was there. It was me and this other scholar, no one else listening. And it was a totally compelling conversation. She was very interested in what I had to say, complimentary. So what could go wrong? Other times I've been told I speak French without a trace of a French accent. There's nothing there. And again, I'll give you my experience, which I think will resonate with uh, listeners to this podcast. I spent some time on a uh, fellowship or visiting professorship in Ottawa, University of Ottawa, where I worked largely, uh, worked a lot of the times with French, uh, French immersion and teaching uh, subject matter in French at the university. And while I was there, I worked on papers with my colleagues. One of them was in French with my French colleagues. French-speaking colleagues. I went back a few months later to talk to my colleagues about our work. We had the meeting in French, going over our paper, outlining it. I ran the meeting. I was the first author, etc. And I was doing fine. We met in a classroom, but nobody was there. Let me tell you who was there. Oh, a lady that I took French classes from, who was really nice. My friend Hubert, who is just fabulous, who spoke English perfectly, but he never wanted to speak it, speak it to anyone. He was more in favor of French. His daughters and my kids got together every Saturday and went over to Hull, the other side of all French, and went roller skating. So we got along fabulously. He was there. He was my buddy. People like that. People I felt good with. I was doing fine in the discussion. I had the outline on the board, filling things in. The door opened and a stranger walked in. And immediately I thought, oh my gosh, he's a professor here. He probably is an excellent speaker of French, probably native speaker. And here I am making a total fool of myself. This was all involuntary. My accent suddenly got worse. My grammar was unsteady. I couldn't find words, etc. It was the output filter that took over that, again, we cannot control. It is how we identify who we're with. Now, if I could, oh, another example is Peter Ustinov, the famous actor. And most people who know him knows that he was a very good in accent. He did movies in French, and I've seen some of them. His French sounds really, really good. And in an interview, he said, I'm fine in movies, but if I speak French in public or with people, my accent is not quite as good because it's not me. It's who you identify with. If you have an accent, leave it alone. It identifies who you are. Arnold Schwarzenegger is a very good case. His English is really good. He's excellent. He's highly, highly literate. I'm sure his uh, vocabulary is three times as large as Donald Trump's vocabulary. Yeah, most certainly. But people say, oh, he doesn't do English well because he has this very tiny accent. If you listen carefully, it's hardly there at all. Yet we demand 100% perfection in accent. That is why we think adults aren't good at language because they have this small little accent. Actually, most adults are very good at second language acquisition and they get very good in accents. They generally acquire 95, 98% of the accent of the second language, but that's not good enough according to the public. So you're right. Adults are good. Adults can do it. The language acquisition de device, in my opinion, never shuts off. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, and this is a very encouraging message to especially older adults. 
And I just wanted to follow this, that up with when I was learning Chinese, my initial stages, I started with beginner podcasts. And there was one podcast that had one sentences that said something along the lines of, oh, I'm sorry, I can't speak Chinese, but in Chinese. And I've probably listened to that at least a hundred times over and over and over again, at which point I tried to use that phrase on someone that was Chinese and instantly the eyes of the Chinese lit up and like, wow, your Chinese is perfect. It's like native tongue. Like, how can you speak that perfect Chinese? And it was only that one sentence. It was not the, the rest of the, the words that I learned and I could produce it in native tongue. And that kind of further proves the theory. You need lots of comprehensible input and then the language will come. And it gets you in trouble. Yep, because they start answering you back. Oh, you're right with us. You know, exactly. Yeah. So I, I'm the same way. There are a few things I can do well. We both need more comprehensible input in Mandarin. That's for sure. You mentioned first and second language acquisition a couple of times. Is there a difference besides the words itself? No, it's the same thing. What we have found for English, for first language, is what we found for second. Uh, my work also extends to first language, literacy, reading, the great phonics controversy. I've been absolutely in the middle of that. Our most impressive result, I think, is that people's competence in written language, in their first language, is a direct, directly related to how much they read, how much they read for pleasure. It affects everything about their language. Let me tell you about a letter to the editor I'm very proud of that I actually got published in the Washington Post. It was about it was about Donald Trump. Uh, by the way, I have broken the world's record for letters to the editor submitted, not published, unfortunately. I love doing them. Writing makes you smarter. Writing doesn't cause language acquisition, but it really helps you with problem solving, clarifying your thinking, etc. So I like writing a lot of them. Anyway, the Post had gotten a lot of, uh, there's a lot of back and forth about Trump's spelling and his spelling mistakes. And people had written in saying, you know, you shouldn't be complaining about his spelling. It's Spelling is no big deal. He just needs someone to proofread what he's done, etc. I wrote a letter and I said, no, the his spelling problems are a symptom of something, a deep underlying pathology. Spelling, uh, our research in California and all over the world, in fact, shows that spelling is related to reading. People who do lots of reading are better in spelling. They're not always perfect, but they're a lot better than people who don't read. Uh, reading is all... Oh man, I know where this is going. Yes, exactly. Of course you do. It is my patriotic duty, by the way, to criticize the president, which I must do. Theodore Roosevelt said that. I agree with that. Uh, so anyway, and I really apologize to everyone listening. I didn't vote for him. I don't know anyone who did. Anyway, a reading is not just related to spelling. People who read more are better. They have a wider vocabulary. Their grammar is better. They have a better sense of writing style. They're more likely to write in acceptable ways. All these things come from reading. Not only that, people who read study from uh, Keith Stanovich, University of Michigan, know more. And this is reading light fiction as well as reading heavy stuff. They know more about science. They know more about history. They know more about literature. They even know more about practical matters. Uh, there's some recent research, I first read about it in Scientific American, then I got the actual articles, that say that people who read more have more productive and sophisticated habits of mind. Uh, first of all, they don't rush to easy solutions. You can see where this is going. They don't take things that are obvious and just jump on them and say they're right. And they have more empathy for people and more understanding of different people. This makes sense. If you read lots of fiction, especially, when you read, you are the protagonist. You take the role of the protagonist 
you make the same, you have the same problems, you make similar mistakes, you see the consequences, it matures you, no question. And this is fiction, not just nonfiction. Uh, by the way, uh, Barack Obama was interviewed by the um, Guardian, British newspaper, and they asked him about fiction. This is a few years ago, and it's as if he had read this research. He says, I found by reading fiction that things are not as simple as you might think they are. They're much more complicated. And I have a better sense of understanding other people. I know now when I meet someone who appears to be very different, if I get to know them, I get to understand them better, and I find the points of commonality. Quite a contrast, of course, to uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, Trump has admitted, kind of proud of it, that he doesn't read. Wow. And my letter concluded by saying, we have all suffered the consequences. Doesn't know about foreign policy, doesn't know facts, and makes strange comments even about science recently, etc. I think he only reads Twitter. Uh, I think that might be true. Yeah, exactly. I have responded to him on Twitter. He doesn't read my responses. Oh, well, I want him to block me on Twitter. That's my goal. That'd be quite an achievement, too. Yeah, I would love it. <laughs> You mentioned a couple of times language acquisition. What's the difference between language acquisition and learning? And is that intentional? Or does it have any significance? Two fundamentally different processes. When I started this field, and I began in language teaching and taking language classes and all that, language learning was the only game in town. We assume that the way you got better in language, and this is true of first language development and second literacy, is you learned about it. You memorized vocabulary. You consciously learned the rules. You got yourself, you got corrected, and then you change your ideas of what the rules were, etc. I simply assumed the way to get better in a language was to get a good grammar book and study. And I certainly did enough of that. It turns out that's not the way we develop ability in language. The way we develop ability in language is subconscious. We acquire it while we're doing it. We're not aware that it's happening. When it's done, it's represented subconsciously in the brain. We call this a feeling for language. In German, it's Sprachgefühl. It's not conscious knowledge. And in fact, one of the reasons we don't respect it is that we're not even aware it's there. It happens to us, though, quite frequently, uh, we become aware of it. When you're talking to someone and it, it's a language that they're not very good at, or they're not perfect at, and it's a language that you speak very well, and they make a mistake. You generally recognize the mistake, but you don't always know the rule. When I hear someone speaking English, my native language, where I've studied the grammar very thoroughly, and they make a mistake, I recognize the mistake, but about 5-10% of the time, I don't know the rule. I just have this feeling that it's incorrect. That is a good indication that this is real, this subconscious knowledge. I can correct them, but I don't know why. I can't give them the rule. And I probably know more about grammar than, I'm sure I know more than anyone you've ever met. I have a PhD in grammar. I've studied grammar, and I love it. I think it's interesting, but it's not the way it's happened. And this is a major revolution in language teaching. It hasn't gotten around as much as I'd like it to, and let me explain why. If this is true and the research supports it, why doesn't everybody why doesn't everybody believe it? Why haven't we changed language teaching throughout the world? Well, actually, we've actually done fairly well in the last 40 years, 45 years or so. Many new methods have come about, beginning with natural approach, which started it. I talked about story listening, programs that emphasize reading for pleasure, um, etc. So it has made an impact, but it hasn't gotten around. And I think there have been pretty good reasons why. People don't know about it. The reason they don't know about it is the only way you can find out is by reading the professional literature and occasionally coming across one of my letters to the editor. Uh, there haven't been too many popular books saying this. I don't write them because I'm not very good at that. 
It's not what I do. And the professional literature is daunting. It's very hard to read. Colleagues at the university complain, oh, teachers don't read. Uh, no, they don't, and I don't blame them. The research papers are extremely difficult to read. They're long. They're dense. Uh, scholars have this tendency to want to say everything they know. Someone said years ago, if you want to, if you want to ask someone about the time, you don't want a history of the wristwatch. My colleagues will always give you a history of the wristwatch. So that's number one. The stuff is too long, too hard. Number two, it's expensive. Uh, this, I found, uh, this really hit me hard in, uh, oh gosh, about 10 years ago. I was asked to contribute an article to a book called Input Matters. Isn't that nice? Play on words. And the articles were all about input and the importance of input. And I happily and cheerfully wrote a long article. I had a very good time writing it. I reviewed all the research on first language, on second language. I reviewed the research on animal language, which pretty much agrees that animals sort of do it the same way, nice case histories. When animals acquire English through sign, or one parrot did it, they don't do much of it, but when they do it, they do it through comprehensible input. I reviewed the research on aliens coming from outer space, and the claim is they communicate, do they or do they not? So I had a good time. When the book came out, it sold for $160 American hardcover. I don't know about you. Holy shit. Yeah, exactly. I can't afford it. I can't. I couldn't afford to get extra copies for my cousins. All right. I looked at the publisher and all the other books by the pub. I won't mention any names. Multilingual Matters. Another book they wrote called Poverty and Language sold for $160. The irony was lost on them. All the books are expensive. The journals are expensive. I, you know, deduct my journal fees from my taxes until a couple of years ago, I was spending five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars buying professional literature. I can't afford it. Now, I've decided to rebel against it. I was uh, inspired by a British mathematician, winner of the Fields Medal, major prize in math, who declared war against the publishers. He said, we read your articles that are submitted. We change them around. We edit them, etc. We write them. And you guys publish them. And you charge just incredibly outrageous fees for subscriptions. So I've started a movement in the United States already taking place in the UK, already taking place in India. In fact, a good colleague of mine has been responsible for this. No more of this. We, I no longer publish in regular journals. I no longer subscribe to them because I can't afford it. The only way you can afford it is if you live next door to a good university library and you can use their facilities. I no longer buy the edited books that cost now $200. I can't afford it. I turn down invitations to publish in these articles, in these books, and in these journals. Everything I publish now is in what are called open access journals. They're real journals. The articles are reviewed. The author doesn't pay anything. The reader doesn't pay anything. It's all free. Someday the entire profession will be doing that. When I write an article in these journals, I post it on my website, sdcrashen.com. Take a look. Operators are standing by. Free download. I regularly announce them on Twitter, scrashen. So follow me on Twitter. You'll see the announcements of the new papers, not just by me, but what my friends are writing to, my colleagues. And I regularly share my articles on something called ResearchGate, which will post anybody's published paper and make it available to everybody. I think that's wonderful. Not only are the articles free, uh, I think all scientific knowledge should be made free, freely available. Not only are the articles free, the articles are short. My articles are like a page, a page and a half. 
The example I use, probably the most frequently cited scientific article of all time, is the article on the double helix, Crick and Watson. It was published in Nature. It's about a page and a half. They don't review the entire research. If you need to review the research, you shouldn't be reading the paper. They don't end the article with a long sermon on what you should be doing with your life. They may put in a sentence, you know, we are aware that there are implications of this for such and such. Keep it short. So the articles that we are doing now, I'm not the only one, are short and they're published open access. So my scholars are doing this. My colleague, uh, Jeff McQuillan, has a, a website called Backseat Linguists, where they're one page, two pages. Uh, my colleagues, Benico Mason, is doing this. Others are doing this. And the, the research is being more and more widely shared. I think someday the entire profession will do this. Uh, university libraries have cut down on their subscriptions of a lot of the journals. They can't afford them. And now we're moving to other places. This, I hope, will change things. Teachers will be able to read papers and understand them and share them easily with colleagues thanks to the internet. And I'm hoping this will allow our research to be more widely circulated. Uh, what I just told you a few minutes ago, our, my paper on showing that there's really very little individual variation when the input is good and comprehensible and optimal, that's about a page and a half published in open access where I can share it with anyone I like. It's there on the website. I regularly post it, repost it, et cetera. So this, I hope, will change things. And I hope popular writers will get the idea. Yeah, I think uh, the time for gatekeepers keeping information from the readers or the people wanting the information is, is uh, coming to an end. Well, we're keeping part of the gate alive. The articles are still reviewed by scholars, and sometimes they're turned down. Sometimes my stuff is turned down, um, etc. That happens, and there's usually a fairly good reason for it. We've eliminated the financial gate. That's the important thing. That's good. So if we kind of move to the towards how do we apply your theory in practice, what, what are some common myths uh, or theories about language learning or acquisition that should be debunked as well when we try to apply a more effective uh, language acquisition program. Okay, let me answer that by telling you what we have been recommending and what we are doing and what is getting good results and how you can see it for yourself free of charge. Little joke first, the secret to success in academia is to invent new terminology that nobody quite understands, which is what I have done. And I'm going to do it now. Every year or so, I have to come up with a new term, keep reinventing myself, kind of like Madonna. And today's new term, which is actually a pretty good one, is called conduit. This is called the conduit hypothesis. And it says that everybody goes through predictable stages in acquiring a language, and each stage is a conduit to the next. It makes the next stage possible. And the three universal stages, and this is true for literacy, first language, second language. Stage one, stories. Stage two, which is a big one, various kinds of reading, and I'll break that up into substages. Stories, first language. Stories are the basis of first language development. First of all, children like to hear stories, as every parent knows. They like to hear the same stories again and again. The only kids who don't like to hear stories are kids whose parents don't like to tell them stories or read to them. The research on listening to stories and listening to books read to you is stunning. Children who are read more stories are better in school 
equal in everything. They have bigger vocabularies. They learn to write more quickly. They know how stories are put together. Again, they know more about the world, etc. And they want to learn. They want to read. They develop a taste for reading because they want to read these stories for themselves. There's a massive research literature on this. I'll give you one case, which I know the best, which is my case, how I grew up and became literate. It would be very nice if I could give you a compelling story about how I overcame obstacles, how everything was against me, and yet through hard work and determination, what we call grit, I made it, but none of that is true. I had a very easy time. Privileged background. I think my spirit's guides decided that I would have an easy incarnation this time, because I might have had some hard ones before. I grew up middle class. Middle class with my family gradually becoming upper middle class, which meant I had creature comforts, which meant I never went hungry, which meant I had medical care, and I had access to books and access to stories. I should also mention I grew up in a family with nearly the complete absence of any family pathology. Mom and dad got along very, very well. They were both readers. They read to me and my sister. And my sister, uh, I'll tell you one story about my sister, which will tell you all of it. Four years, three and a half years older. When I was nine, my sister took me to the local public library and got me a library card. This is the kind of facilitation I had. She introduced me to good stories on the radio, etc. Children who grew up like this, middle class, have so many advantages. Uh, those of us who had it have to tell the world about it and how easy it was because children of poverty don't have that. And it's a million times harder when a child of poverty, even working class, is successful in school, becomes highly literate. It's quite an accomplishment. And there's usually a story behind it, how they got access to these things that they didn't have at home. So that's how I made it. To use baseball terminology, there's a wonderful quote by a football coach, Barry Switzer, but it's a baseball quote. Some people are born on third base and they spent their whole life thinking they hit a triple. People who are born middle class think they made it themselves. The rumor among many of Trump's followers is that he was a self-made man and that he overcame obstacles. No, he was born into tremendous wealth, millions, etc. And this is generally what you see in successful people like me. We were born with huge advantages. So school has to provide what the family could not. We need schools with really good libraries. We need story time. Uh, I'll give a plug for a very good book, The Read Aloud Handbook by Jim Trelease, T-R-E-L-E-A-S-E, which is all about read-alouds and how important they are to children. Highly readable, and he has done a great deal in encouraging read-alouds and high literacy uh, throughout the English-speaking world, in my opinion. Okay, so we have imitated this in language acquisition. The good teaching methods for foreign language and second languages all encompass some version of stories, listening to stories. The one I've been working with the most closely, I've mentioned Benico Mason several times. She's developed a method called story listening. Story listening, the teacher from the first day goes in and tells stories, draws pictures as she tells them. Uh, if you go to the website, Stories First, you can watch me telling a story in German. You can watch uh, lessons in Spanish, lessons in French, um, etc. Get an idea of how it's done. You do this for quite a while. The stories get more and more complicated. She likes to retell stories from Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, because, they, as she says it, they've stood the test of time. They are 
are interesting and they're not boring, they're exciting, and people add their own versions, um, etc. So gradually, that's the first reading assignment from for the students in classes. Students read the stories that the teacher has told them, and you can see collections of these stories, and that's a good start. Uh, from there, you move on to the second stage. The second stage is reading. This is, the research on reading is absolutely stunning. I wrote a book on this, too expensive, sorry to say, but most of it is in journal papers called The Power of Reading. I wrote this about 20 years ago. The research on reading is absolutely stunning. People, free reading, we call it free voluntary reading, self-selected reading. The reading you do on your own is the major source of our spelling, of our vocabulary, of our grammar, of our ability to write in a coherent writing style in first language and in second language. The best predictor of performance on any standardized test of language is how much pleasure reading kids have done. We did a big study of this. I did this with uh, Jeff McQuillan and C. and Lee, uh, and it's mentioned in a book. Uh, gosh, also too expensive, so I won't mention it. Uh, we did this a couple of years ago, looking at the results of the Pearls examination, an international test uh, given to children in 40 different countries, and they're tested in their own language. This is a first language study, and I think it's probably the most important research project I've ever been connected with. The Pearls organization supplies the raw data what students from each country did, how much reading they did, reports of questionnaires, their scores, the poverty level of the country, um, etc. Again, these are 10-year-olds from 40 countries throughout the world, so we had a very good database. Here's what we found. Your, the scores on reading comprehension, the best predictor by far was poverty. You find this in any research that mentions poverty. It is so strong. All the other variables are nearly always swamped away. There's no room left for any other predictor to show its face. And we found that too. We found it in two versions that we did. Poverty, overwhelmingly the best predictor of how you do in reading comprehension when you're 10 years old. We then added access to a school library with a sufficient number of books. The first study we did, the impact of the school library was exactly the same as the impact of poverty. Poverty lowers your score. Reading, access to a school library raises it. It balanced the effect of poverty. Children of poverty don't read well. Major reason, they have nothing to read. When you supply them with books, their reading scores look much, much better. In our first study, it actually balanced it perfectly. The second study we did, the uh, effect of the library was not as strong, but it made up for about 40% of the effect of poverty, which shows you how strong it is. We actually, we also had data on whether the kids had early exposure to teaching, whether their parents had taught them uh, spelling, uh, gave them a little bit of writing practice, etc. All the things school thinks are very important, a little bit of phonics, etc. Kids who had that did no better in reading four years later. In fact, uh, one time we looked at it, they actually did a little worse. The amount of instruction in reading they had in school, one time made no difference. One time was negatively correlated. So it was our major result. It's reading that did it. Poverty, of course, and part of poverty is access to books. If you live in poverty, you have fewer books in the home. You have fewer bookstores. Your parents can't afford to buy them for you. Uh, school libraries are not as good. So reading itself, I conclude, 
include was the major conclusion. Let me summarize the big phonics debate very quickly. Again, there's lots of stuff on it uh, on my website that you can see. Uh, I've been very influenced by positively by the work of Frank Smith and literacy and Kenneth Goodman, who died, I think, last week, who really was super heroic in the field. Here's my conclusion based on the research. If you look at studies of reading efficiency, if you give kids what we call systematic phonics instruction. It does predict reading score. The more phonics, the better you do, depending on the reading test. You do better on tests in which all you do is you're given a list of words and you pronounce them out loud. That's it. You don't do better in reading comprehension. So all that stuff it simply makes you a better word caller. That's all. If you give kids both reading and a little phonics, they do better in both. In fact, kids who do more reading do better on phonics tests as well. So this whole phonics argument absolutely disappears when you look at when you look at the research. Uh, the National Reading Panel in the United States came out in the year 2000. Uh, they attacked free reading and they praised phonics. And I have responded to both of them back and forth, back and forth. I'll summarize it. They're wrong. I'm right. How do you like that? Uh, we we looked at a colleague of mine, Elaine Guerin, looked at their phonics research. She was the one who first made this discovery, so I'm really copying her result. Those who had more phonics did better on tests of phonics, reading, pronouncing words out loud. They did not do better on tests of reading. And over and over again, people who read more did better on everything, better on reading comprehension, better on virtually everything you test that's language-related. So there, there it is. My main points, poverty is the main predictor of reading. And of course, having more food, having creature comforts, all that counts, no question. But one of the main things about poverty is you have very little access to books. When you have little access to books, you don't see good results. When you supply the books, things get better. Uh, I got an article published in a letter to the editor in The Guardian years ago. It said, support libraries, not phonics. A little bit of phonics doesn't hurt. It's okay. You might as well tell kids about the rules. But most of the rules are too complicated. Nobody even knows them. I've conducted this informal study, which I'll conduct on you, David. Okay? Sure, go ahead. Let's say I write out the word B-O-M-B, mom, okay? You know how the first B is sounded out. It's pronounced B, correct? Okay. What about the second B? It's silent. You don't pronounce it. Am I right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Very similar. Okay. So you know that rule. What's the rule? Why isn't B pronounced at the M, at the end? I, I have no idea. Of course not. Nobody knows. I have asked this question of hundreds of teachers, reading teachers. They don't know. People have a feeling for it. Yeah, there's also a good example in German, which are the noun markers, Daddy Das. And I couldn't even tell you what the rule is. I just know them. I have a feeling for it. Even even I do with German. I have a feeling now that uh, which is right, uh, et cetera, and why we say Das Mädchen, for example, you know, because it is. <laughs> yeah, try explaining to someone that's learning German why it's Das Mädchen, which is neutral, about die Frau, which is female. You can hardly explain that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I'm, I'm, at least I can say I'm a product of your theory indirectly because to this day, I'm extremely bad at grammar. I struggled with the Chinese because they were starting with teaching Chinese with grammar. And I'm like, I don't even know the German rules. How, how are you trying to teach me grammar and the correct rules if I don't even know them in German? Now, am I a little ashamed of it? Yeah, but I can get by. Nobody can detect that I'm not German because it's I'm native. I just know the rules. I know when to use something. I make mistakes. 
Anyway, it just is. That's the way it, it has happened. Probably you can go back to, you know, the various shifts in the language, borrowings, etc. Okay, going back to bomb, there is a rule for it. I had to look it up. And it's fairly complicated. It turns out if there's a B at the end of a word and it comes after M, it's not pronounced. But there are exceptions. Like bombing, it's not pronounced, but bombardier it is. It depends on the nature of the suffix. Nobody knows. And there are lots, and knife is another example. There are lots and lots of rules like that. We acquire it. We don't learn it. Learning is fine if you're an amateur linguist and you get pleasure out of knowing the rules. But it doesn't help you to be better in language. It just lets you show off as I just did. Okay, So that's the acquisition learning distinction, two methods. Now, David, I, I'm going to raise my fee because I just gave you some very good therapy. You're normal. Knowing the rules is an, a hobby. It won't help you with the language. And one of the things we have to overcome as a culture is teaching language through grammar. We have caused a huge amount of suffering and people feeling bad. Is that badly or bad, uh, uh, etc.? I think we have to drop this. Here's what I suggest. If you're studying another, if you're studying Chinese, let's offer sessions simply to people who think grammar is interesting and want to study it as subject matter. And those are optional, where they can learn about the history of the language and why we say, you know, why it's disona, you know, for example, and, and le soleil, okay, it's, it's feminine in one language and uh, masculine in others. And then you can have a hard time, you can have a nice time discussing that in the target language and you can do both at once. But for normal people, it's not necessary. I'll tell you the story of Steve Sternfeld, good buddy of mine. He was my student at one time and he's a language teacher and has very good insights. He was an undergraduate major in Berkeley in languages and loved grammar just the way I did. Knew the grammar of everything, studied it, studied it. And he went to Paris to do French and spent, he wasn't really making any progress. And he decided to take some time off. And he did something which grammar people would regard as horrifying. He went on vacation and decided to hitchhike around France just to see the country and get to know people. He left his dictionary home. Can you imagine? Blasphemy. Left it in his boarding house room in Paris. My God, his becherel for conjugating verbs left that back. He'd get into, get a ride, sit in the back seat and start a conversation in French, not wanting to improve, just wanting to chat, get to know the people. He spent the whole summer like that. When he got back to Paris, Paris. His friends all said, your French has improved so much. After three weeks, it is amazing. And people have stories like this. When you, he had to forcibly leave the grammar behind. I'll tell you what I'm going through now. This is an ongoing discussion I'm having with colleagues. About two months ago, I was in the middle of reading two easy readers in Spanish, and I'm still reading lots of them. I still think they're helping. And I was reading two at once, two at the same time. One of them was written by my colleague, Bill Van Patten. I mentioned him, and his readings are really good literature. They're profound. They represent struggles he's had growing up, family life, friends, um, etc. Oh, I can talk about him because he's made this very public. He is homosexual, he's gay, and he doesn't mind talking about it, and he's very eloquent on it. And in one of the stories, it's a brother and a sister, their relationship, and it's basically how the sister was able to communicate his problem, not his problem, but his condition to the parents, and make them understand deeply moving, an emotional story about brother-sister relationships, and how loyal the brother and sister could be to each other. I think, by the way, that was the theme of, of Frozen, how the queen and the princess actually got along and, and helped each other in their pain and not being able to communicate. So I read that. There was no dictionary in the back. He didn't include it. It's fairly demanding, but I couldn't wait to see what he was going to say next. 
It moved me along. I also got a reader in Spanish, which was much easier. And I started reading it, and there was a glossary at the end of each chapter. I looked up the words, even though I knew them, just to make sure, because I'm such a fanatic about grammar and making sure I knew the exact meaning, which violates everything I know about language acquisition. So I feel what uh, Elfie Kahn talks about this, the undertow toward traditional methods, which affects even me. In here, I've come along with this theory that says grammar is not the way you do it. You do it through acquisition. And I feel the pull of grammar. I feel the pull of getting things right. I know from the research that when you see a word in print and you understand it, you don't get the whole thing right away. It's gradual. You need to see it in different contexts. It takes five, ten times to see the word till you really have it. And just relax. You're going to see it again. Don't worry if you don't get the whole thing. It's going to come back. And even I have ignored this. So I'm letting you off the hook, David. If this happens to me, and I have a PhD in grammar, as I told you, and I know the rules so well, even I feel bad that I don't, I can't articulate them all the time, that I don't know the full meaning of the word, etc. It's going to take the human race quite a while to resist the undertow. So this is, I think, something we can maybe learn from uh, the coronavirus is to quarantine the people that love grammar from the people that just <laughs> wants to learn the language. Yeah, tell them to shut up and just relax. Exactly. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, that's what I used to tell my ex-girlfriend. I'm like, if, if you have pleasure in, in grammar, sure, good. But don't lie to yourself saying grammar will improve your language. Because again, I can only say it from my own experience learning two languages simultaneously that your theory checks out. It was so intuitive back then. And I'm like, guy, this finally someone that explains to me why the English of Germans are fairly bad compared to the Scandinavians. It's not the worst in Europe. I'm not hating on Germans, but explain that and why I can speak proper English, fairly good, I would assume, and, and, and uh, proper German without knowing the rules. Einwandfrei. Yes, exactly. Well, let's now talk about tones, because that's what you've come up with in Putonghua in Chinese, right? Tones are acquired slowly over time. You, there are a few tones that you and I will get right, because they're obvious, like the negative marker. Ma, we've heard that enough. Teachers like that. It's probably the only one I've consciously learned. It might be the only one I occasionally get right, because we can't handle monitoring all that stuff. I've looked at what is a Canadian guy. His nickname in Chinese is Big Mountain. Um, Dashan. I don't forget what his name da, is. Dashan. Yeah. Dashan. Dashan. See, I don't get the tone. And he's a comedian. He's on TV and Chinese and all that. I've seen interviews. He acquired the tones. He just listens and relaxes and lets them, you know, kind of subconsciously drift in as they do. There's no way a beginner can get tones right and come out with anything coherent. Can't even get to the end of the sentence because every word, there's a decision to make. So that's simply the way it is. My Chinese teachers, fortunately, whom I've had most of my input has been from them, they're very good at understanding people with lousy tones. So find yourself someone who's a former teacher and you'll get better. The tones will come and they'll understand you. Yeah, that reminds me of a, a funny story. When we were at the three-week uh, Chinese boot camp, we had a Chinese teacher responsible for pronunciation specifically, and she was level one. So level one is the requirement in China to be able to speak on the news. And even among native speakers, that's extremely rare and very difficult to achieve. Oh my. But we had her, luckily, as our pronunciation teacher. And she had a, a set of dental teeth. 
and that's why I nicknamed her Mouth, <laughs> and I kind of stuck with 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 her and, and the whole group. If you didn't pronounce something correctly, she would be in your face, showing you the teeth, how to position your tongue, and and boy, if you didn't pronounce it correctly, yes. again, she would be in your face, showing you how putonghua, uh, and she would make sure you pronounce that correctly. And people think she's an excellent teacher. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. This person really, really knows the rules and really can, yeah, but it can't be done. Uh, I want to look at tones a little more carefully in my research and see what I'm right now trying to gather case histories of people who've acquired Chinese very well as foreigners and see how they got the tones, see what they say about it. And my prediction is most of it will be acquired. So that kind of wraps up the, the interview. Is there something I didn't mention or forgot to touch uh, on? that I should have mentioned? Well, I, I do want to, I want to repeat that I hope people will follow me on Twitter for the reasons I've mentioned. It's the source of information. And also, I, I want to catch up to Justin Bieber. He's only about 20 million ahead of me now. So about six centuries, I can do it. So follow me on Twitter. Well, by the time this podcast comes out, you'll have your 20 million. I'm just kidding. I don't think I have that much uh, listeners. Okay, great. It's a deal. I'm patient. Thanks uh, for being on the podcast. Okay, very good. I've enjoyed this. Appreciate it. Wow. I don't know about you, but I could have gone on for a few more hours with Professor Krashner. It's always very fascinating as he backs up his claims with tons of research, case studies, and so on. But now it's that time again to kind of summarize what we've learned and give you some of the key takeaways. As you're probably aware by now, or hopefully, a lot of today's language learning approaches are still based on old theories and misconceptions about how we humans effectively acquire language. This is most evident by the probably the most widely accepted misconception that children acquire language much more easily than adults, but nothing could be further from the truth, as evident and lots of scientific studies show. Yet most of us don't want to accept that, despite the overwhelming evidence. And I think this is in large part due to the fact that people want an excuse not to do something, such as acquiring a new language, and we humans can get very creative when making up excuses. Furthermore, most schools and language institutions still rely on these antiquated methods that is not only very ineffective, but also slows down language acquisition and causes a lot of anxiety among language learners. That doesn't mean we haven't seen any progress, but we've tried the old approach for decades on end, over 40 years. We've tried teaching grammar, we've had students memorize vocabulary, we've had people memorize dialogues, but we need to stop this. We acquire language when we understand what people are saying, not how it is said. Notice we, when we teach language today, we usually do the exact opposite. We first memorize some vocabulary, then learn some grammar rules consciously, and then practice them in output until they become automatic, or in other words, consciously learned knowledge eventually becomes subconsciously acquired knowledge. And this skill-building approach, how it's also called, also states that we adjust our consciously learned rules when they are corrected. But how about we try the natural language approach for a change? It has not only proven to be much more effective, but also much more enjoyable. That old way or that skill-building approach has not done really well in research and is often very painful. Yet this skill-building hypothesis for most people, it's a widely accepted default. We don't question it anymore. 
And yet most people are unaware that the groundbreaking comprehensible input hypothesis exists. And here's the thing, what could be more encouraging than this theory? Not having to learn tons of grammar or hundreds of vocabs at the start, Krashen's theory of second language acquisition consists mainly of five hypotheses. The first hypothesis is the input hypothesis. So we essentially acquire language in one way and one way only, by understanding comprehensible input. Which means learners progress in their knowledge of language when they comprehend language input that is slightly or more advanced than their current level. Then we have the second hypothesis, which is the acquisition learning hypothesis, and there is a strict separation between language acquisition and, learn and language learning. This means adults have two distinctive ways of developing competence in a second language acquisition that is used by using language for real communication and learning about the language. Then we have the monitor hypothesis. So consciously learned language can only be used to monitor language output. It can never be the source of spontaneous speech. So language acquisition does not require extensive use of conscious grammatical rules and does not require tedious drills. By now, it should also be very clear that analyzing language, formulating rules, setting irregularities apart, and teaching complex facts about the target language is not language teaching, but rather language appreciation for linguists, which does not lead to language proficiency. Then we have the natural order hypothesis. Language gets acquired in a predictable order, and that this order does not really change between learners and is not affected by explicit instruction. And then also we have the effective filter hypothesis. So the learner's ability to acquire language is constrained or blocked if they are experiencing negative emotions. So mental blocks such as fear, anxiety, uh, or the fear of embarrassment. And at such times, the effective filter is said to be up. To sum this up, the best methods are therefore those that supply comprehensible input in low anxiety situations containing messages that students really want to hear. These methods don't really force an early production of the second language, but allows the student to produce when they are ready, recognizing that improvements come from supplying comprehensible input and not from forcing someone and correcting the production of that student. That's his hypothesis in a nutshell, and applied correctly, it can have a profound impact. This also gives you no excuse, no matter your age, not to acquire a new language, if that's what you choose. You can't use the cop-out that you're too old to learn a new language, or that the period of you effectively acquiring a new language has passed. If children acquire languages at a much slower rate than adults, not faster, you have absolutely no reason to doubt your capabilities of acquiring a new language. So if you want to delve deeper into the research behind Professor Krashen's hypothesis, go to his website. Uh, I've also linked uh, his uh, website in the show notes. There you can find many of his publications. They're available free for download. And I think they're also regularly announced on his Twitter account. And his papers tend to be very short and very comprehensible. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our podcast website, innovationalcorrectness.com or gammabeyond.com, or just follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long-form articles, videos, and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Overcast, or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out by encouraging more people to find our podcast and reach hard-to-get guests. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions, 
suggestions for further episodes or guests that we should invite on our podcast or just have feedback, you have three options. Emailing us at info at gammabeyond.com, filling out our anonymous feedback form at innovationalcorrectness.com, or leaving us a voice message with your question or feedback so that it can be included in the podcast and all listeners can profit. Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com. Links are in the show notes. I've been your host, David Luna. Until next time.